Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 28th, 2021, and this is show number 825. Well, this week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, we're joined by Lindsay Tondi, Senior Manager in Quality Assurance at a global pharmaceutical company. And she joins us to talk about whether it's a good or a bad thing that companies are thinking about having their workforce continue to work from home indefinitely. I originally thought this is going to be a great thing because, you know, we're going to have fewer cars on the road, we'll have less traffic, less pollution, and office buildings won't be needed, and people will gain hours of their life back because they're not spending it commuting in their cars. But Lindsay explains that uh, what is missed when you work from home and the benefits of a blended model where people work only partly from home. She talks about the issues surrounding building relationships at work that help people get things done and how the fun activities of her office have been transformed into safe distance fun. She also talks about how much more challenging it becomes if two people are working from home in a small house. We don't come up with all the answers, but I found it to be a fascinating way to throw these ideas around with someone who's currently in the middle of figuring this all out for herself and her employees. There's one more little thing I should mention. Lindsay Tondi is a frequent attendee of the live NoSilicast. She hangs out in the live chat room and talks to everyone, and her handle in there is Lindsay the Daughter. Yep. Lindsay Tondi is my daughter, and she's fantastic, and she rocked this interview. And I learned a lot that I had never thought of about working from home in today's day and age. We're going to start out this week's show with a debut listener review. Matthias Keyboard Review by Kyle Bora. I received the Matthias Wireless Aluminum Keyboard as a Christmas present in 2020. I am running a 2015 13-inch MacBook Pro. I for many years used the built-in keyboard of the laptop, but recently, since the 2020 COVID lockdowns, I have been using the Apple Wireless Magic Keyboard, the old one with the AA battery cylinder at the top and a wired USB numpad. One might ask, Kyle, why did you get another keyboard when you have two perfectly working keyboards already in your possession? In other words, what problems does this solve? Particularly when it comes to computing, I think of problems as what pain points does this solve, or what does this piece of tech do that it couldn't do before. Firstly, this keyboard takes my Apple keyboard and USB numpad and puts them all into one nice neat package. That's a definite plus in my book. Secondly, the Matthias keyboard is reported to have a year-long battery life. Yes, you heard me right. The specs say Matthias has put a 1600 milliamp hour battery in this keyboard. This allows the keyboard not to shut off while no one is using it, so when you come back to it, no waiting for a couple seconds while the keyboard has to reconnect. With the Apple keyboard I was using, I found myself replacing the AA batteries it takes like every month or so. I've only had this keyboard a couple weeks, so I can't tell you if it lives up to the year of advertised battery life, so we'll just have to give Matthias the benefit of the doubt. The keyboard does have a power button on the back, but who needs a power button when you have a year-long battery? Thirdly, the Matthias keyboard can connect up to four Bluetooth devices. You switch to each of the connected devices with the four buttons above the number pad. I have my Mac, my iPhone, and an Apple TV connected currently. I plan to retire my current Intel 
machine to a bootcamp Windows install and get a four-port Apple Silicon laptop when those are available. That will be my four devices. The Matthias has been a welcome upgrade. The Apple Magic Keyboard is a pain in the Apple bias to unpair and repair to another device. The simplicity of pressing one key and one to two seconds you're up and going on the other device is a game changer. Now, the most important part, the keys, of course. There is both good and bad here. They feel good to type on. They have two millimeters of travel where Apple's scissor switch keyboards only have one. They're on the quieter side of the spectrum. You get just enough click to be notable, but not so much to be annoying. Being a full-size keyboard, it obviously has a full-size number pad, arrow keys, dedicated six-pack with delete, home and end, page up and down, and function. Yes, the function key is not in the bottom row of modifiers like on all Apple keyboards, but more on that in a second. Above the six-pack, which I guess makes it a nine-pack, are F13, 14, and 15. As mentioned previously, the four buttons to switch to the different connected devices are above the number pad. The main part of the keyboard is taken up by the standard QWERTY style keyboard. The bottom row consists of left control, option, and command, space, and right command, option, and control. These modifiers will also change according to the system you connect to. So when connecting to a Windows or Android device, the modifiers are in the proper places, no weird remapping necessary. What is not evident with the bottom row of keys though, is that the spacebar is an inch longer on this keyboard than on the Apple. On the Apple keyboards, the spacebar goes from the left side of the F key to the right side of the J key. This makes for a very centered look and feel. On the Matthias, the spacebar goes from the left side of the F key to nearly the right side of the L key. This extended spacebar is there to make sure the bottom row of keys is the same length as the rows above them. This pushes the right modifiers just that much more to the right as compared to the other keyboards. This matters for me in the right option key. I'm a voiceover user, and as a voiceover user, you can enable a feature called Keyboard Commander. Keyboard Commander lets you use the left, right, or both option keys in combination with alphanumeric or some symbol keys to run voiceover actions, open or switch to a running application, or run Apple scripts. I have been using the right option key for years now. The right option key on the Matthias keyboard is just far enough to the right to make it uncomfortable to reach. I have switched to the left option key, but you know how keyboard shortcuts get ingrained into your brain. In other words, I'm adjusting. The keyboard comes in space gray with black keycaps, gold also with black keycaps, silver with white keycaps, and rose gold also with white keycaps. I chose the space gray, which can be picked up for $99 from Matthias's website, matthias.ca. If this keyboard doesn't appeal to you, check out Matthias's 19 other keyboards and I'm sure you'll find something you like. Overall, I really enjoy using my Matthias keyboard. The multiple device switching is super convenient and the typing feels great. 
If you're looking to upgrade your keyboarding experience, I highly recommend picking up a Matthias wireless aluminum keyboard or any other Matthias keyboard. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle cap K-Y-L-E, cap B-O-R-A-H. And we can talk keyboards, tech, or anything else on your mind. Well, thank you, Kyle. That was a fantastic first-time review. I can't believe you haven't done this for us before. I hope you do more of these. I can see how frustrating that uh, slight rearrangement or slight shifting of the keys would be, but maybe it's a good way to stretch your brain to try to try to get rid of that first muscle memory and try this new muscle memory. But uh, yeah, that's going to be a challenge. Interesting stuff, though. I've been making video tutorials for Screencast Online for around five years. I really enjoy making the tutorials because it forces me to learn new tools and I have to learn them really, really well in order to teach them. It's absolutely true that the best way to learn something is to teach it. There's a lot of pitfalls when choosing a tool to teach. In order to make a tutorial, I have to really understand the tool, like I said. I start by poking every button and control in the app to figure out what it does and I explore every single preference and option. I know that I pretend I never read manuals, but that's actually not true. I often read the manual for the more complex tools. As I work my way through learning the app, I create a mind map using my beloved iThoughts from Toketaware. I just fling my discoveries into the mind map just all over the place, and as I work my way through the app, I start to reorganize the topics into a story of how to use that app. For example, in some apps, the only logical place to start is with the preferences, like with Bartender 4. If you don't look at the preferences, you can't even figure out what the tool does. But with other apps, the preferences are sort of like a bow on the top at the end of the story. One of the huge pitfalls in doing these tutorials, as any of the Screencast Online staff will tell you, is that partway through working on an app, you discover it isn't what you thought it was when you decided to do the tutorial. Maybe the app turns out to be too simplistic to be worthy of a 30 to 40 minute tutorial. Often software turns out to be buggy and we definitely have to change horses when that happens. Sometimes you're halfway through the process when the developer decides to put out a major update and it messes up everything you've done. But there's one thing that has never happened to me before in this process before now. Last week I started doing a tutorial on an app that I assumed would be fairly simplistic and easy to fit within the 30 minute window. I made this assumption based on the price, and I couldn't have been more wrong. The app in question is Screenium from Cinium Software at CiniumSoftware.com. You may recognize the name of the company. They're the folks who make the, uh, Logoist. And I've talked about Logoist before on the show. I've written an article about it. And I also did a screencast online tutorial about Logoist. You may also have seen their app Mac Family Tree. Screenium is a screencasting app along the lines of ScreenFlow from Telestream, which is what we use at Screencast Online, or like Camtasia from TechSmith. These apps are $129 and $100 respectively. But in contrast, Screenium lists for $55, and it's been on sale for over a year for $27 in the Mac App Store. I checked in with the developer on that sale price because I didn't want to talk about it as a $27 app if it was about to go back up in price. The developer told me they dropped the price when everyone had to start working from home and that they plan on keeping the price that low for the foreseeable future. Even at $55 or even double that, this is still an amazing app. Now, I assumed that a $27 screencasting app must not be very capable, but I thought, you know, maybe it'd be useful for people with very limited needs. I could not have been more wrong. 
As I was learning the app and making my mind map and reading the awesome user manual, I mean, one of the best user manuals I've ever read, I realized there was no way I could get this app done, do it justice in 30 to 40 minutes. I explained the problem to J.F. Brissett, my producer at Screencast Online, and his advice was to break it up into a basic and an advanced tutorial, which is exactly what I've done. Even with breaking it in half, I've started working on the second one, and I think it's going to be really hard to keep that advanced tutorial under the goal of 40 minutes. Well, now that I've given you the background, I'd like to talk about Screenium itself and what makes it such an interesting application. I said along the lines of the other screencasting apps because while it meets the same end goal, the approach in some aspects is vastly different from the other tools. I'll walk through at the big picture level how Screenium works and how it's different from other screencasting apps. Screenium has a start window with four options for screen capture, area, full screen, single window, and iOS slash tvOS device. As you hover over each icon, the icons sort of animate and move towards you to show that they're in focus. I know that doesn't really add to the functionality, but it's an attention to detail that I really appreciate. The first three screen capture options are pretty standard, but the fourth one is very interesting. If you connect an iOS device via USB and do the, you know, trust this computer dance, you can record the screen, your voice, and the system sounds from the iOS device. I've seen that done before, but I'd never recorded a tvOS device. I'd heard there was a USB port on Apple TVs for diagnostic purposes, and I'd heard that people had done some interesting things through that port, but it never occurred to me I'd be able to record the screen. It turns out that if you keep the Apple TV plugged into a display using the HDMI port, and you connect a USB cable from the Apple TV to your computer, you can capture the Apple TV screen and audio with Screenium. The Apple TV HD and the Apple TV 4K models both have a USB-C connector conveniently located well, well above the HDMI port. On the older models, though, it's micro USB, and it's so close to the HDMI port that I was unable to plug in a USB and HDMI cable at the same time. If you can't plug them both in, you can't get Screenium to recognize the device. Maybe somebody has a skinny-headed HDMI cable and they would be able to do it on the older devices, but none of my HDMI cables would fit. If the idea of capturing an Apple TV output would be useful to you, keep in mind that our little friend High Definition Copy Protection, also known as HDCP, will prevent you from capturing any copy-protected content like TV shows and movies. Oddly, I was able to capture a game inside arcades, so there is some fun to be had. I was also able to capture the Fitness Plus app interface, but as soon as I started a workout, the screen went black, but the audio was still there. I guess I understand that they probably don't want you to be able to capture those video, those recordings as videos and then maybe put them out on YouTube or something like that. So they do keep you from uh, recording the video from the Fitness Plus interface. I still, I really hate copy protection. I think the best use of this option might be if you wanted to teach someone how to navigate the tvOS interface and its settings. I could use C using Screenium to do that. Or perhaps you've written your own app for tvOS and you want to create tutorials on how to use it. Well, the next section of the start window is called Recording Configurations. Screenium has configurations for video, desktop, audio, camera, mouse, keyboard, and timer. Some of these have super obvious settings, you know, like under camera, you choose the camera, but some of the others are pretty interesting. For example, under audio, where you choose your microphone, you can choose more than one microphone and they will all be simultaneously recorded. 
I'm not sure I need to have more than one enabled, but it could come in handy, and I've never seen another app allow that. Screenium also offers to let you capture system audio while recording the screen. They do this through a download of the elderly, but still functioning and yet unsupported Soundflower extension. If you must use Soundflower, the option is there, but I would highly recommend using Loopback from Rogue Amoeba for this functionality instead. And guess what? I've written an article about Loopback, and I've done a Screencast Online video tutorial on how to use Loopback. Okay, how many of you said under your breath, yeah, of course she did. Well, anyway, under desktop configuration, Screenium can automatically remove all of your desktop icons while you're recording and replace your desktop background with a solid fill or an alternate image. Let's say you've got a photo of like a cute kitten on your desktop background, but you're doing a demo of a first-person shooter game and you're kind of afraid it's going to reduce your cred in the community to have that kitten showing. You can replace it with a nice skull and crossbones background that only shows in the recording. You never see it while, you know, it's not really changing your background. It just changes it in the recording. The mouse visualizations configuration is probably the coolest and most interesting section. When you're recording a screencast, if it's a tutorial like the kinds of things I make, you really want people to be able to see your mouse cursor and where you click. But maybe you're demoing something where the cursor would be a distraction. You can set the default behavior to capture or not capture the cursor and mouse clicks in Screenium. Even if you do record the cursor and later on decide you don't want it, you can always turn it off in the recording after the fact. And that, that's something that ScreenFlow can do as well. Both ScreenFlow and Screenium allow you to add animations to your cursor clicks. So, for example, when you click on a menu, the video shows a little series of red circles emanating from the point at which you clicked. They call that radar, so it's like, doo -doo -doo -doo, you know, you see the red coming out from it. This is really helpful for drawing your views, viewers' attention. With ScreenFlow, you turn on these visualizations after you've made the recording, but Screenium lets you set defaults for all of your recordings so you don't have to set it up each and every time. Screenium also lets you change them within individual recordings after you've made those recordings. But that's not even the fun part. With Screenium and the recording configurations, they give you three rectangles, one white, one gray, and one black. As you choose a different color, duration, strength, and size option for your, your mouse visualizations, you can click on those three squares, the, the white, gray, and black, to see which options give you the right effect across all of the different colored backgrounds. So let's say you chose a dark gray for the main button click. You'd see right away that it would never show up on the darker colors. It only shows up on white. You can even choose to have the button names displayed. So if you right click versus left click, it'll say right or left next to the button click. Even if you don't need to do this, it's really fun to play with in the interface. In the interface, I should say. Now, I know it's dorky to be this excited about how a mouse cursor is presented in a video screencast, but Screenium has one more fun thing in this configuration tool. If you turn on scroll wheel, wherever you scroll in a recording, two downward or upward facing chevrons will show on screen. I'm always saying, let me scroll down here, but I wouldn't have to do that if it was visible on screen. When doing a screencast, it can be very handy to show your keystrokes when you're using a keyboard shortcut like Command-C for copy. In recording configuration for keyboard, there's a simple checkbox to record keystrokes, but it doesn't have any further refinements than that. The problem with this control is that it records every keystroke, not just keyboard shortcuts. Luckily, once you've recorded a segment, you can uncheck a box for visualized text input, but leave visualized keyboard shortcuts enabled. 
I prefer that to be a default you can set in recording configurations for keyboard, but at least you can set it in each recording. One of the annoying things in doing screencasting is waiting while a countdown timer goes by before you can start your demonstration. It's usually only a few seconds, and I know it's good to have a countdown, but it always seems to go on way longer than I want it to. Like other screencasting apps, Screenium lets you change the countdown time, but they do one thing better than the others. When the countdown timer comes up, you can hit enter and it immediately lets you start recording. I love that feature. Even if it's only two seconds, it bugs me to just sit there doing nothing. I got to Come on, I got stuff to do. I don't have that kind of time. It has another option that adds pretty much no value at all, but I still really like it. When the countdown timer goes, you can have it make a sound while it's counting down, and one of them is called TV-esque. If you're old enough, you can already hear the sound in your head of when we would see the pattern on the TV with a hand. It was like a black and white pattern, and you'd see a TV hand sweeping around, and it would be going boop, 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 boop as it counts down. It sounds exactly like that. I know they did that one just for fun, but it made me smile. Well, once you set all these recording configuration defaults, they stick, like I said, with all future recordings until you change them. But remember, you can always change any of these attributes after you make a recording. For example, I enabled my webcam and I kept forgetting to disable it in the recording configurations. So every video I've recorded had my dumb face on it, but I can just select that video track and delete it in the final recording until I remember to go back into recording configuration defaults and turn it off. Now, Screenium has an interesting way of storing and categorizing your recordings. When you finish making a recording, it opens the file in the timeline editing view. If you don't save it, it then calls it a previous recording and keeps it in a holding bin in the start window, kind of a video library, if you will. If you do save it in the timeline view, then it becomes what they call a composition. So one is a recording and one is a composition. So if you actively say save, then they call it a composition. It shows the compositions in that same library bin on the start window, but the file is saved to a place you specify, while previous recordings are saved by default into your user library movie screenium folder. It works out just fine, but it's different from what I've seen in other apps, so it took me a little bit to figure out how to work with the recordings in this way. In practice, a composition will consist of more than a single recording, so it does make sense to save them in a logical location. You do have to remember, though, to keep an eye on that user library movie screenium folder because everything you ever record will stay in there until you actively delete it. All right, all right, enough of setting up the configurations. Let's talk about the timeline editor. In Screenium, everything is an object. You can add objects to your initial recording by choosing from the video library you've just created. You can add pictures from your photos library, and you can add text and shapes to your composition. Each of these objects can be, uh, will be on its own track in the timeline. Now, it's a little counterintuitive, but the visibility of objects is controlled by the location of the track it's on, with the lowest track being the visible thing on top. For example, if you have a video track on top and below that you have a track with an outlining rectangle, the lower track, the one with the outlining rectangle, will show on top of the video track. If you put the rectangle on the track above the video, then it will disappear behind the video. Once you get used to it, it's fine, but it just seems a little upside down to me. All objects can be animated, so you can add a keyframe and have an arrow slide across the screen or have some text fade out, make a photo rotate out of the frame, or have a video object zoom in or zoom out. Screenium shows these keyframes as blue rectangles underneath the affected track. It also shows blue dots above the track for where you've clicked the mouse. 
If you've turned on mouse click visualization, that is, you'll be able to see those. This makes it really easy to navigate to the right one of the, of the animations or mouse clicks to make sure the visualization works the way you wanted it to. To the right of the video canvas is the Attributes Inspector, which is a contextual set of controls to allow you to change the attributes of any object. This is where you can set things like the opacity, scaling, location, and more of each object. The level of control is really extensive, really intuitive, and easy to manage. I'm pleased with Screenium's control of simple objects. Drawing a box frame around something to draw attention to it is it's a, just a really common thing you do in screencasting, and it's one of the most frustrating things to do in ScreenFlow. In ScreenFlow, once you create a simple box frame, if you change the proportions of the box, like make it, a, say, a rectangle instead of a square, the thickness of the border scales with it. So in my example of a long rectangle turning into a square, I don't want the size to get thicker when I make it into a square. That doesn't make any sense. I want the thickness of the line to be the same. So as a result, I'm always creating boxes and deleting them and adding them again ju just to get them right. It's really a pain. With Screenium, a box is just a normal object, and the thickness does not vary when you mess with the length and width. Screenium has some crazy video effects, and I'm not sure they solve a problem for me. You could distort your video with everything from a Gaussian blur to a kaleidoscope effect to a twirling distortion. With the animation tools, you can set the range in the video where these effects take place, and you can change all of the attributes of it as well. If this is your cup of tea, the awesome manual has some nice step-by-step -step tutorials on how to apply these effects. Now, if you're an audiophile, you'll be glad to know that you can add audio effects like low and high-pass filters, a parametric equalizer, multiband compressor, reverb, and more. It's as easy as drag and drop onto the audio tracks to apply these effects. The graphics equalizer is delightful to work with. Instead of having to drag each of the 20 or so frequency bands up and down one by one, going, you know, making all the little controls, if you just control right click and drag your cursor, you can simply draw the shape you want to see on the EQ. It's really intuitive, works, works great. I'm telling you, read that manual, it's got all kinds of cool tricks in it. Speaking of audio, one of the things I rely on with ScreenFlow is to be able to do voiceovers when I mess something up. Like when I was doing the recording for Parallels Toolbox and I kept accidentally saying Parallels Desktop, it happened about 40 times. I didn't need to go back and re-record the video. All I had to do was a voiceover to fix it. Screenium has voiceover too, and it works really well. I stumbled across something delightful that Screenium can do that to my knowledge, ScreenFlow cannot. You can select a track, video, audio, any kind of object, copy it, and then paste it into another composition. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do that with ScreenFlow, but you have to select a segment of the recording, export it to disk, and then in, then in the second recording, import the exported segments into the library and then drag it from the library into the timeline. Come on, Screenium's simple copy and paste is what I've always wanted ScreenFlow to do. All right, by now I'm sure I've convinced you that this software is bananas capable and incredibly inexpensive at $27 for such a professional tool. But I would be remiss if I told you I thought everything in Screenium worked the way I like it. If I had my druthers, there would be way more keyboard shortcuts. Adding a fade in, fade out to an annotation object happens constantly. And instead of a pair of keystrokes like with ScreenFlow, with Screenium, you have to add animation keyframe markers and then use a drop-down menu to get to these options on each one of those keyframes. For something I do that often, I need keystrokes. 
An even more common need is to cut a segment of a video out and uh, a video and audio out and then have the following video and audio slide to the left to remove the gap. With ScreenFlow, you click drag to select where you want to remove and hit command backspace to cut and everything to the right just moves over to fill that gap. In Screenium, you make the left cut, then you make the right cut to isolate the segment, then you delete the segment, then you right click on the following tracks and select shift to previous object. Again, for how often I do that, I feel it'd be a big loss in productivity until Mike Price wrote me a keyboard maestro shortcut to do it for me. I was able to create animations, but the keyframe model isn't entirely intuitive for me yet. I haven't quite figured out which keyframe is starting or ending the animation. Now I suspect that some practice would cement it for me, but as Bart would say, the penny hasn't yet dropped for me on this one. Okay, I've said it twice already, but the bottom line is that if you need a highly capable video screencasting application, I would highly recommend you take a look at Screenium before shelling out four to five times as much for Camtasia or ScreenFlow. Now, my basic tutorial on Screenium will be up on Screencast Online in about two weeks, and if I get it done, the advanced class will be up two weeks after that. I think I'm going to be able to pull it off because I'm so enthusiastic about this application. Well, we have two heroes this week. Both Joan Richardson and George McHugh get value out of the work we do at the PodFeed podcast, and they decided to show that appreciation by giving me some value back. They went to podfeed.com slash Patreon, and they chose a dollar amount per show that was right for them. These lovely people, along with the other folks who've been contributing for a long time, help keep the show funded so we continue to have fun together. Please consider going to Patreon and showing your support for the PodFeed podcast. Back in 2015, I wrote an article entitled Everything is Fiddly, where I basically ranted about all of the things that are supposed to just work and yet don't. In 2018, Helma from the Netherlands followed up with her own story of, uh, for us of how everything is fiddly. As my life continues to be filled with fiddly bits to this day, I was remembering how cathartic it was to get that off my chest. And then I had what I think could be a really fun idea. When something fiddly happens in your tech life, I'd like you to send me a short recording describing what happens. I bet we could make this a regular segment because, well, everything is fiddly. You know, it's really easy to make a recording. Grab your phone, open up voice memos, and talk it out. If you can give me a, a little script for it, it's even better because that makes it fun for the blog post. So here's the kind of thing I'm thinking of. How about this? When I'm on a walk for exercise, I use Siri to remind myself of things I need to do when I get home. She interrupts my podcast playing in Downcast while I'm talking, sets the reminder, and then restarts the podcast I was listening to. Except today, where once Downcast kept playing while Siri and I were chatting, so I missed a bunch of my podcast. Then later, she did interrupt the podcast, but she didn't restart it afterwards, and when I asked her to resume, she picked a completely different podcast than what I was listening to. Everything is fiddly! Like I said, if you write it out as a short script, that'll maybe make it tight and focused, and that's even more fun. If you want to do an even longer form fiddly bit, you know what, that's always an option. I'm not sure we want to let Alistair play in this one, though, because right now I'm pretty sure if he did a, if he did a recording of what wasn't fiddly, that might be shorter than what is fiddly for him. Well, anyway, I thought this is really going to be fun, and if we're going to do it, we're going to need a jingle. So Lindsay got my grandson Forbes to supply the voice, and Steve added some music, and now we're ready for business. Let's have a listen to our jingle for Everything is Fiddly. Everything is fiddly. 
Okay, I know that's self-serving because it's my grandson, but I think it's adorable. Anyway, if this whole idea sounds as fun and cathartic to you as it does to me, I hope you'll send in some recordings. And I'll just keep playing these. We'll do this as long as it takes until nothing is fiddly. All apps, all operating system, all smart assistants, all IoT devices are fair game for this. Send in your contributions to allison at podfeet.com and you can entitle them, Everything is Fiddly. Last year, I wrote an article explaining why I like the cross-platform app Telegram so much better than Apple Messages. I talked about how there's no blue-green bubble nonsense, how group threads never get tangled, how it syncs across devices instantly, how it has built-in GIF search, and most importantly, how you can edit and delete messages in Telegram. What I didn't tell you was that there was one thing I actually did like better about messages than Telegram, and that's the integration with Siri and AirPods. When I'm out for my walk and someone sends me a message through Apple Messages, my podcast will pause and I'll hear the message in my AirPods. I can say, hey, S-Lady, reply, and she'll take my dictation and send my reply. Back when I wrote that blog post, Telegram would not let me do this, and it made me sad. Rosemary Orchard even tried to help me do it with shortcuts, but the hooks weren't there, so it never worked. But... A few months back, Telegram added this capability, and like many things in Telegram, I like how it's implemented so much better than it was done in Messages. So let's talk about what the problem is with Messages. I do like getting my personal messages in my ears. Unfortunately, every single thing Messages ever receives comes through on my headphones. Messages doesn't differentiate what it reads to you at all. Picture this. I'm trotting along listening to an intense interview by Alan Alda on Clear and Vivid where he's having Kip Thorne explain gravitational waves and suddenly it's interrupted with Thelma Lou laughed at a message. Well, there's two things wrong with this. First of all, I've lost the thread of where Kip was explaining that rainfall moves the ground enough to be detected by the instruments. Second of all, even if I hadn't been listening to something where this level of concentration is required... What value is it to tell me that Thelma Lou laughed at a message if you're not going to tell me which message she laughed at? It's zero value with maximum annoyance. Secondly, I dislike tapbacks even when I'm reading messages, but I truly despise them when they interrupt my podcast. If what I wrote isn't worth your time to write a clever response, I'd truly rather you didn't respond at all. Tapbacks are too easy to do, and I don't think they add to the conversation. The second problem is group messages coming through to my AirPods. As I'm sure is true with your friends, group messages can get chatty from time to time. I've been on a walk when I'll get interrupted every few feet because a group is going back and forth on a topic. Now, those conversations are often interesting, and I really like reading them on my phone or my computer, but I wish there was a way to shut them up when I'm walking. Worse yet, people in group messages seem to love those darn tapbacks. You know, Billy Bob loved a message. Great, which one? Well, the third problem is a feature of messages, but I don't favor it. If a message comes in that is considered long, and I don't know what the definition of long is, your message will not be read to you. Instead, Siri just interrupts you and tells you (laughs) you've received a message. I'm really not sure which is worse, being told that Thelma Lou laughed at a message I can't see, or being told that Thelma Lou sent a message, but then the S-Lady refusing to read it to me. They both interrupt me, which is equally annoying, but not reading a message to me is probably more frustrating. So now my train of listening has been derailed and my curiosity has been piqued. Even though Thelma Lou isn't all that interesting, now I have to know what she said. You can say, hey, S-Lady, read it to me, and then she'll read the message, if you're quick about it. 
So now the S lady has interrupted me, but not read me the message. Then I have to ask her to read it to me, and then I can hear the message. It is such a waste of my time. If Siri reads you a message and you're quick about it, you can say, hey, S lady, reply, and then dictate a response. Remember, though, that her short-term memory is extremely limited, so if you wait too long, she'll say, what? What? Reply to what? Well, to send an original message to someone using messages, you simply say, hey, S lady, send a message to Thelma Lou, and she'll reply with, what would you like to say? You then dictate your text, she reads it back to you, and then asks if you're ready to send it. If there aren't any egregious typos, you say yes, and she'll let you send the message. I'll admit that sending original text messages with messages works extremely well. With Telegram, you initiate original messages in essentially the way you do it in messages, but instead you say, hey, S lady, send a telegram to Thelma Lou. It works very well. When replying to telegrams, you don't have to specify the platform as long as you're quick about it. After she reads you a telegram message, you very quickly say, hey, S lady, reply and she'll assume you meant to reply to the telegram. This week I was chatting with Bart on telegram while on a walk. He sent me a telegram and evidently I hesitated too long. I said, hey S lady, reply. And she said, who do you want to reply to? All right, well, she forgot who just wrote to me, but I'll play along. I said, Bart. And she took my reply and she sent it. Later when I got home, I realized she sent my replies through messages, not telegram. He must have been very confused that I switched platforms. So anyway, you do have to be quick about it with those replies, or she'll default back to messages. Now, I described to you the three things I don't like about messages coming into my headphones. The first was those dumb tapbacks, and since Telegram doesn't even have the concept of tapbacks, Thelma Lou is forced to actually write something clever such as, ha-ha. The second problem was the group message threads that are just too chatty. Telegram solves this by not reading group Telegram messages at all. How brilliant is that? Individual personalized messages are more likely to require a response, so only those get routed to your headphones. I love my group messages, and especially my Wine Wednesday group, which can get very chatty, but I don't want to be interrupted every 12th step on my walks by the conversation, so this is a huge improvement for me. I can write to them when I get back. Now, Telegram does tap your wrist if you have an Apple Watch if you get a group message, so you can glance down and see if you care enough to participate. I was on a walk recently where Bart and Helma and I were discussing the right way to structure a new Taming the Terminal episode, and I deeply cared about the decisions being made. I never heard the messages through my headphones, but when I saw it on my wrist, I stopped, unlocked my phone, and I dictated a few messages back. When the conversation is a bit lighter and less complex, I've been known to use my Apple Watch to dictate my response to a group message. I love this compromise, having group conversations on my wrist and individual conversations in my ears. Now, I have to admit that Telegram does one dumb thing, and I really hope they fix this. Let's say Stephen Getz answers a question I've sent about the number of graphic cores on an M1 MacBook Air. I'll hear in my headphones, Stephen Getz says eight cores. But then let's say before I can reply, he writes a second message that says, unless you buy the entry-level model, which only has seven cores. Even though Telegram already read me the first message, if I don't interrupt in between those two messages, it will repeat the first message before reading the second message. So I'll hear Stephen Getz says eight cores and Stephen Getz says, unless you buy the entry level model, which only has seven cores, even though I already heard her say Stephen Getz says eight cores. 
Now, I'm not sure why Telegram does this, but perhaps in programming, uh, I don't know, maybe they thought if two messages came in back to back, you'd want to hear them both in order to, uh, to maintain context. It's all I can figure. It can get really bad if the person writing you likes to put each thought into a separate Telegram because Siri will repeat every message every time. So let's say somebody sends you four Telegrams back to back. You'd hear one, then one and two, one, two and three, and then one, two, three and four. It's not exactly what I'd like it to do. My solution is that if I hear any kind of a long message that I would not want to hear twice, I always reply to it with thanks or okay or cool or some other one-word response designed simply to interrupt Siri's ability to read me that first message again. If I only had tapbacks. Oh, no, just kidding, just kidding. Don't want tapbacks. The bottom line is that I continue to love Telegram, and I find that in general, the way they think about features lines up very well with my preferences. I now have 63 of my friends and family on Telegram, and it's wonderful. All the cool kids are on Telegram. Come join us. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. Oh, wait, don't forget to send in your everything's fiddly comments at allison at podfeed.com, too. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a, a patron? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join in the conversation? That's podfeet.com slash Slack. Or if you still like Facebook, podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Lindsay the Daughter does, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.